First Samuel 17, the story that we read of David and Goliath is perhaps the most known story in all of the scriptures. Everywhere we look, it pops up, whether it's uh, the faith world or outside of that. Yesterday, I watched, I was actually, where's Sandy? She's downstairs. Yes, Sandy, if you can hear me, Oklahoma tried to cough up a football game yesterday. Um, Yesterday, watched ball games, seeing them play, and it's not uncommon to hear Philip was back there somewhere. I saw him too. Uh, I like to be able to hassle you Oklahoma folks. Um, You hear sports commentators talk about when the small school plays the large school, that it's a, a David versus Goliath type setup. When it comes playoff time and the unexpected team is there playing against the perennial powerhouse, they talk about David versus Goliath. In all kinds of scenarios, we watch as this illustration pops up, this metaphor for the idea of the underdog taking on the expected winner surfaces over and over again. The other night, I even saw a TV commercial for Survivor. Which somehow has made it 37 seasons. We won't have to talk about that. But somehow 37 seasons into Survivor. And this one they're calling, theming, David versus Goliath. I don't even know what that means with regards to the show. But I just thought when I saw it, wow, that's interesting. That's what they've decided to call it. There's something appealing to us about the idea of an underdog Going up against the favorite or the expected victor or the one that we attempt or expect will get the win. Even a couple years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book that became very popular called uh, David and Goliath. In it, he talked about and challenged the idea of, of maybe our typical understanding of the story being off. He challenged the common thinking about what is going on. So today, as we look at this story, the challenge that I feel like has come to me, the challenge for us as we look at it is, as the church, looking at a familiar story, a world that, or a story that much of the world knows, how do we, how how does the church, uh, people who believe that this book and this story are somehow sacred, how do we... Look at the passage differently from how the rest of the world looks at it. How do we be intentional and cautious not to oversimplify what is there, to dive in and think deeply about what it is that we're supposed to grasp or supposed to understand? And reality is, as with most stories in the scripture, there's a multitude of directions we could run. We could ask all kinds of questions and look into this passage in a ton of different ways. But the focus of our series has been the idea that that we are to be a people after God's own heart, which is what David was called. So we're looking into the life of David to see if we can learn some lessons for how that happens. Some hints at how we might get to that place. And in this story, there, there are some hints. So we want to look at what some of those hints might be for how we become that kind of people. But before we do so, I want to kind of run down a rabbit trail. I don't know if I get to call it one because it's intentional, but I want to kind of run down a rabbit trail and talk about a couple questions that perhaps would arise for you if you read this story. So if you've read it this week, as we've encouraged some of you to, if you've read through it, maybe you had some questions. I had questions. 
questions about chapter 17 not making a whole lot of sense coming right after 1 Samuel 16. Some questions about how these two could exist together because there were these weird things that I should expect or I expected in the story that didn't show up. Like there's no mention of the palace, even though in chapter 16, we see that David goes to work in the palace for Saul. There's no mention of that at all. In fact, this story says that David was at home working with sheep. It seems that Saul didn't know David when David came in to ask who this was. To ca- came in to have this conversation with regards to, to the battle and Goliath. Because we find that Saul actually asked to be introduced to David. Who is this man? Who is this that has come? And yet we know that if he went to meet him last time as his harpist, surely there would have been some kind of introduction. Chapter 17 actually reads as if it's a brand new introduction to David. As if first. Samuel 16 never even happened. It never even existed in the story. It just moves right on past that into a brand new introduction. Now, I'm no Bible scholar. So when I run into questions like this, I have to do the same thing that you have to do. I have to go and read men and women who are much smarter than me who try and wrestle with these questions. To come up with an idea of what might be going on and what am I supposed to do with it. And as I looked for this one, I ran across three common responses to what was happening, or three common approaches. The first um, was to ignore it completely. To just pretend that there were no questions, there were no discrepancies, uh, there were no inconsistencies that took place. Just look at uh, chapter 16 and then talk about chapter 17 and never even look at the idea of, wait a minute, why does it say this when Matt already said that and what's going on there? They just pretend as if none of those questions could ever, ever surface on anyone's mind. They read on and completely overlook the idea that there's any confusion or any question in them. Now, my personal opinion, and this is unbelievably common, not just with this text, but over and over again in the scriptures. My personal opinion is that that's an incredibly poor decision when it comes to how we look at the scriptures. I think it's a poor decision for us not to be willing to ask the hard questions of scripture. And this isn't even that hard a question. But it... it, almost looks as if we are somehow afraid of our own scriptures when we pretend that there are no questions. When we look at chapter 16 and then chapter 17 and we don't go, wow, that's weird. He's completely introduced all over again. I wonder why that takes place. But instead we just read it and go, well, there's no question in that. That obviously makes sense. And we just keep reading like nothing even happened. I think it's an incredibly poor decision. It looks like we're afraid to wrestle with it. It looks like we're afraid to wrestle with any hard questions. We're unwilling to ask those hard questions. So when people outside of our experience or who don't think the same way about the scriptures ask those questions, we look at them like they have four eyeballs. What are you talking about? I didn't know there was anywhere that there were questions or that it didn't make sense or that there were things that were confusing. It seems to me that when we do this, we're kind of like the emperor in that children's story. You know, the one where the emperor marches around naked all the time, but no one's willing to tell him because they're not sure what will happen. It's as if we live in the same way, pretending that everything is okay Unwilling to face the truth that there are some difficulties here. There are some things that we should ask questions about. Some things that we should look at. Some things that we should wonder about. I don't think we have to approach the scriptures in this kind of naive or uninformed style. 
I think that we can ask questions of the scripture. We may not always get answers, but we can ask. First approach, just pretend it doesn't exist. Second approach that I saw pretty common is to talk about the idea that maybe these stories were compiled stories. Maybe they came from different places, from different sources, and whoever was putting them together didn't necessarily align all of them and make them fit together. And I'll say to you, I think this thing's possible. I think it's possible that that's exactly what took place. We don't know who wrote all these stories. We don't know who passed them along, who retold them when they were passed along orally, or once they became written, who always passed them along on paper. But we know that it got passed along over and over again, down through generations. And it is possible that no one came along and smoothed them out. Now, sometimes when we talk about that possibility, some of us begin to have questions about, well, what does that mean? What do we do with our Bible in that situation? For me, that doesn't diminish its value or validity in any way. It actually only reinforces the idea that perhaps there were multiple people peering in. Multiple people watching what God was doing as God was working among his people and retelling those stories. Multiple people were watching and it's coming from multiple vantage points and perspectives as different people give us their understanding of what's taking place. I mean, if three of us were to stand together and watch an event take place and then I were to say, okay, tell me the story. What just happened and separate you all out? We would all tell the story in three different ways. Lots of overlaps, but there would be slight differences. That doesn't mean that any of us are lying. Or that this didn't actually happen because our stories don't exactly line up. It just means that that we all retold the story slightly differently. So it's possible. One, ignore it. Two, the idea of multiple stories all compiled together. The third one that I saw most common, and actually the leaning that I have, is that these oversights in this story really aren't that big a deal and are fairly easy to explain if we're willing to ask the questions about what's going on. David reintroduced as if he was a brand new character in the story. That's not actually uncommon in legacy stories. In long legacy stories, it's not uncommon for the main character to be reintroduced over and over again. In an origin type story, it's not uncommon for the main character to be reintroduced in different ways, in different facets, to get different understanding of who that person is. It's not uncommon as stories are passed down orally for a primary character to be introduced over and over again as if perhaps the other story wouldn't have been told at the same time. That's not at all uncommon. And as I said, in these really long stories, it's also not uncommon that there be a reintroduction of the main character so that those who were hearing these stories were originally passed down verbally, orally, and those who are reading, once we have it written down, can be reminded of who the story is focusing on, of who it is that we're supposed to see, of who it is that we're supposed to follow. That's not at all uncommon or unusual. Well, shouldn't Saul have already known who David was? I mean, we just learned that he became his harpist. He was working for him. The assumption in my mind until I was willing to ask these questions is that somehow the king and the guy who played the harp were best buds. That they somehow existed side by side all the time. And yet the reality is the palace would have been full of servants. And we don't actually know or have any room to assume that Saul and David ever even met when he came to play the harp. He didn't need to see David. He didn't need to meet David. All he needed to do was to hear him play the harp 
because it helped him feel better. So it's incredibly possible that they had had no interaction whatsoever. Not to mention, if they'd had limited interaction, there's no reason he would have assumed the guy who could play the harp suddenly shows up at the battlefield and says, I'll take on that giant that you and your soldiers have been scared of for the last 40 days. Like, why would anyone, especially King Saul, assume that those two people were the same person? So the question of, wait a minute, who is this guy? Where did he come from? None of this really seems that far of a stretch for this to happen. Well, what about not mentioning the palace? Well, the palace would have been empty. Saul and so many of the folks who would have been there were off to war. So doesn't it make sense that they didn't need David to play the harp for the sick king who wasn't there anyway? So it's incredibly possible he went home to help his dad with the sheep while the king was away. None of this necessarily a stretch. It can be confusing if we're not willing to think about it, to ask about it, to look into it, and to say, huh, I wonder how these things don't line up. And then to go, oh, okay, that makes some sense. All right, now that we've resolved that, or at least I've started up some for you so that you can wrestle with it, which would be even better than resolving it. Let's move on to the idea of what lessons can we learn from David's life? What hints can we get at what it means to be a people after God's own heart? I think in order for us to get there, one of the most significant things that we have to grab a hold of, that we have to to get at this point, is that at least in this moment, David had a very clear understanding of who he was. And he was committed to who he understood himself to be. He was committed to those truths. Now that's not always the case. Lots of time in David's, lots of times in David's story, he completely loses touch with who he's, who he is, who he's called to be, who he's supposed to be. But in this moment, we see someone who is deeply connected with who they are. And connected to that and alongside that is the idea that David, this man after God's own heart, was chosen by God. David held on to that truth. And a part of knowing who he was is that he had been chosen by God. Beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 16, two weeks ago, we talked about that. We talked about that interaction of David being chosen by Samuel, the prophet of God, choosing him. David knew that he had been chosen in a significant Characteristic of the connection that existed between David and God, part of what made this relationship so special, so special is that David believed he was deeply loved by God. Even though he was consistently rejected by others, he was chosen by God. Even though he was consistently overlooked and pushed away, he was loved by God. John Goldengay, uh, an Old Testament scholar and um, commentary writer, says that we have missed something in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We didn't look that far back, but we just briefly glanced across the passage that's in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. And he says that we've, we've missed something in what's going on. We typically read a version that looks something like this, that says, but now your kingdom must end. This is... Samuel talking to Saul, now your kingdom must end for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. We've named the entire series after this, after this passage. And again, the re-mention in Acts chapter 13, a man after his own heart, the Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people. 
because you've not kept the Lord's command. Golden Gate would say that the idea of a man after his own heart, that part that's underlined there, is technically correct. However, he says that we've missed this slight nuance that exists in the Hebrew language. This slight nuance that could be translated a little bit different and carries with it a little different understanding of what's taking place in this. So this is not wrong. There's just something that we're missing because we don't understand the fullness of what's going on in the Hebrew language. So here's the way Golden Gate translates 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. He says, Yahweh, another name for the Lord, has sought for himself, notice the underline, a man he has decided on. Yahweh has declared him to be ruler over his people because you did not observe what Yahweh commanded. So this idea of a man after God's own heart starts at the place that God chose David. It didn't begin with David or what David had done right or what David was good at. It began with the reality that God chose David because he loved him. So the starting point for everything that David does right in his life begins at the place that he was loved by and chosen by God. The starting point for David in his role as the king is that he was loved by and chosen by God. The starting point for all the great character traits that we see from time to time in his life start at the reality. That David knew he was loved by and chosen by God. Now, if you feel like we've repeated this a lot over the last three weeks, you're right. We've come back to the same place several times in the last three weeks of repeating that we are loved by God. That David was loved by God. He was chosen by God. And we're coming back and we're repeating it over and over again because I'm afraid many of us have missed this truth. And if we didn't miss it, that we've lost it somewhere along the way in our faith journey. That we were told it was true, we believed it was true. It was a part of the children's songs that we heard growing up in the church. But now, today, now that I'm deeper into my life, it's not possible that that's still true. There's no way in which that is still true. Here's evidence of that. I want you to do something for me. David Benner in his book, Surrender to Love, Poses a challenge with a question. I want you to do this. I want you to imagine for me. You ready? Everybody with me? Somebody next to you is asleep. Wake them up for a minute. I need them for just a minute. Then they can go back to sleep. Imagine for me. Imagine God thinking about you. Specifically. Right now. Can you get there? What do you assume God feels when you come to mind? For many of us, the first thought that came to our mind is perhaps disappointment. Or frustration, or anger, or maybe even ambivalence. He doesn't, he doesn't care at all. He wouldn't even know who I was to think about me. Benner makes the claim in his book, and I believe the scriptures repeat over and over and over again, that any of those options and any other of the negative options that came to mind are all absolutely false. 
Here's what Benner has to say. Regardless of what you've come to believe about God based on your life experience, the truth is that when God thinks of you, love swells in his heart and a smile comes to his face. God bursts with love for humans. He is far from being emotionally uninvolved with his creation. God's bias towards us is strong, persistent, and positive. The Christian God chooses to be known as love. And that love pervades every aspect of God's relationship with us. Most of... I can't assume what you thought of. Many of us, myself included, don't begin with the idea that when God thinks about me, the very first thing that he thinks is, wow, I love Chad. I am so in love with this child. David was convinced of this truth. In the best moments of his life. As we walk through his journey in the best moments, this story included, David was convinced that it was true. And because David believed that God had chosen him, that God loved him, it gave him the ability to reject the criticism that came from his brothers. In verse 28 of chapter 17, it says, But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the man, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. It wasn't true. David knew that that wasn't true. But rather than being crushed by this assault, this attack on his character, David pushed forward because he believed that he was chosen. He believed that he was loved. Because he believed in God's love for him, because he believed that he'd been chosen, he was able to overlook Saul's critique of any chance that David could beat this giant. Verse 33, it says this, don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy and he's been a man of war since his youth. Even after David persisted, but I can, I know I can, I can go. Still, Saul felt the need to try and dress him up like a warrior. To put on in battle gear and give him this great big sword that he couldn't even hold. Saul needed David to look the part. If you remember our emotionally healthy spirituality study that we did a couple of years ago, Peace Cazero talks about this passage and he says that David was unwilling to go into battle looking like a warrior because David knew who he was and who he wasn't. David wasn't a warrior. At this point, David was a shepherd. He wasn't going into battle trying to look like something. He wasn't trying to look like a warrior ready and tested and able to handle the armor that a warrior had been trained to use. David was going to go in as David, shepherd boy, chosen and loved by God. Because of God's love, David had this firm grasp on who he was. He was loved and he was chosen And that was enough for him. Because of God's love, because of God's choosing that David knew that he lived in, that he believed was true. He was able to stand firm when he got to the battlefield and Goliath laughed at him. He ridiculed him. He mocked him. Starting in verse 41, it says, Goliath walked out toward David. 
with a shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. Sure, he was outmatched. Sure, if you're watching this, the scene had to have looked foolish. Tiny little David standing beside this guy that they assume was eight, nine, ten feet tall. It had to have looked hilarious if you were watching from the sides. Sure, as David stood there, he was an obvious, easy defeat for this giant. But David, this young boy, walked in with deep conviction that he was chosen by God. He was loved by God. So he entered the battlefield committed to and convinced of victory. When you and I are able to start at a place of believing that we are deeply loved, it gives us a new understanding of who we are as individuals. When we can start from this place of conviction that we are loved by God, that we are chosen by God, it gives us the ability to stand against the many attacks that come our way in our own lives. When the God of creation declares over us that we are loved, that we are chosen, it gives us the ability to find our true self and then to pursue the fullness of who we are and who we're called to be. Friends, this knowledge alone, this belief that you are deeply loved by God, that you are chosen by God is life-changing. But on its own still isn't enough. Because there is still hard work connected with coming to the place of knowing who you truly are. Who God has created you to be. Who God has called you to be. And that means that for many of us we have to dig into the pains of our past. That means for many of us that we need to see some kind of counselor who can help us walk through the journey that we've been through and help us see how to make sense of that and what that means for our future and who we're going to be. That means that we have to make amends for perhaps people that we've hurt in the past because of decisions that we've made or things that we didn't understand as we're coming to this fuller understanding of who we are. That means that we have to come to the place that we confess the sin in our life, the ways in which we have walked differently than how God would have us walk. It means that we have to continue to pursue the daily practices of surrender to a God who loves us and who has chosen us. And none of these are easy works. They're really, really hard. They're not always fun. And sometimes, honestly, they're painful. And even in the process, often we'll fail. David did. As we continue in this story, we're going to get to see somebody who who didn't always do it right, who did fail along the way because even though he knew he was loved and he was chosen, it was difficult for him to keep hold of who he was and continue to live into that. But if you and I are willing to live out of surrender to the God who has chosen us and to the God who loves us, then we can find what it is that I believe David found in this story. We can find incredible bravery to do the unimaginable. 
We can find the bravery to stand against the giants that come against us in our own life. And those giants look so different for so many of us. For some, the giants have been broken relationships. For others, the giants have been the loss of a loved one. For others, the giants have been moves that that were unexpected. For some, the giants have been lost jobs or loss of dreams or hopes that were coming. These giants that come and attack us. For some of us, the giants are completely internal. They're these ways that we beat ourselves up and say we aren't capable, we aren't worthy, there's no way we can't get there. But if we start at this place of conviction that we are deeply loved by God, that we are chosen by God, we can find the bravery to stand against those giants. We can find the bravery to walk into God's desires for our future. David was incredibly brave. Everyone else in the story believed that he would lose this battle. Everyone. No one believed it was even possible That he could win. They expected him to get crushed. He was the only one that thought it was even possible. Now in Malcolm Gladwell's book. He argues that. Underdogs often have this unseen advantage. Over the giants. Over Goliath. And he says that we've missed the point and the idea that it's about the underdog and the giant and this unexpected battle. But that that David actually had some special tools that gave him the ability to win. That because of David's method in going to battle, that it gave him an almost easy victory in the way it looks over a giant who really wanted to go into hand-to-hand combat with him. The giant really wanted to wrestle with David. So 10 foot tall giant and little teenage boy, what the giant has in mind is this up close hand to hand wrestling match where obviously David will be crushed. And even if Gladwell's right, for me, that doesn't change the reality that David had incredible bravery. For me, that doesn't change that as David walked into this, there was an incredible possibility that he would lose this battle. It doesn't change that he had to find the courage to come up with a method of fighting that would give him any chance whatsoever to stand against the giant. It doesn't change that out of a conviction of God's love for him and the idea that God had chosen him, that he was able to do the unexpected. Valley. Friends, those who are here today and a part of the Valley family are not. We become a people who are living after the heart of God in order for us to get there, in order for us to find out what this means, we have to first come to the place of being convinced that we are chosen by God, that we are deeply loved by the Savior of the world, the creator of the universe. And if we can start at that place, then we find the courage to explore ourselves. To look inside and begin to see what our own hopes are. What our dreams are, what our gifts are, what our passions are, what our desires are. And when we're able to find ourselves and when we're able to find the bravery to continue to walk into these things. To take the love that we trust is true. To take hold of these things that we've discovered about ourselves. Then we have the ability to walk forward against these giants that stand against us. 
And reality is we may still win or we may still lose. But either way, we will go boldly. We will go in convinced that we are loved by God. We are chosen by Jesus. We will go in as ourselves. We will walk up against those giants transformed. And as a people bringing transformation to others. And this is the call of what it means to be a people after God's own heart. But, but it always starts with believing that we are loved by Jesus. You are chosen by God. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, we thank you for loving us and choosing us. And God, I ask that you would give us courage to live into that. Courage to pursue it. Willingness to be transformed by your love and your grace. God, I pray today that if nothing else, hearts and minds are able to be changed simply by the reality that when you think of us, you are overwhelmed with love. God, may we find victory over our giants because we are loved by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.